Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hosea. You're like, what, where? You can use your index if you can't find Hosea. It's right after Daniel. So if you like truck your way through the Old Testament, hit the Psalms, hit the big prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those guys, he's right after Daniel. You get this little book called Hosea. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, we have ushers who would love to get a Bible into your hands. It's just super important to have God's word open with you, to have a, have a copy of God's word that you can underline, you can write in, you can follow along because that's what we're gonna be talking about today. We're just gonna be digging into God's word. So grab a copy of God's word, open up on your phone, however you got it, and go to Hosea. We're gonna be in Hosea chapter one this morning. Now, as you're turning there, one of my favorite Christian authors is A.W. Tozer. I love reading his stuff because you can't read A.W. Tozer without getting like a swift kick in the gut. Like your, your heart gets checked when you read a guy like A.W. Tozer. And one of his quotes, it's so important as we jump into this series this morning, he says this, he says, what comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And he says this, that our worship, our, our mission, our acts of service, how we live will be as high or as low as our view of God. Our church will be as, as high of an impact as we have a view of who God is. So, so we need to look at that picture of, of how do we view God? I mean, what do you think about when you think about God? When you read through scripture, it's a question you should ask all the time. As you open up God's word, one question on your heart and mind should always be this. What does this say about God? Now, C.S. Lewis, he, he takes this idea one step further. He, he, he took the idea of that quote, the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. And he says this. He says, how we think God thinks about us shapes what we believe. So he says, it's not just thinking about who God is. That's important. He then says, the way you view how God views yourself. I mean, what do you believe when you, when you think about, about how God views you? Do, is, is God angry with you? Do, does God pity you? Is he annoyed with you? Does God love you? When God looks at you, have that, that picture in mind that you're in God's presence. And when he, he looks at you, what's going on in God's heart in that moment? What's his face look like when he sees you? What's his face look like when you come to mind? Does he notice you? Does he care about you? I think for many people, God is just this kind of this ethereal big man upstairs. He, he kind of wound this whole thing up, but now he's not super involved. He just sits back to watch the whole world unwind. And, and unfortunately, many Christians even grab a hold of this kind of view. And, and there are Christians who would say, you know, God only cares as long as I'm super religious and doing moral things and, and as long as I'm happy, he's not too involved. Kind of, kind of a, a nicer deistic philosophy. God's not super involved in my life. Or, or there are Christians who would think this, that if he does think about me, he doesn't care a lot about me, wants nothing to do with me. What I hope we see in this series as we unpack it over the next few weeks is that that's not God's disposition at all. We're gonna, we're gonna take a, a step to, to go deeper into who God is, to, to look at the heart of God and, and maybe, maybe you're gonna see it in a way as we go through the book of Hosea, you're going to see God's heart in a way you never thought God's heart would look. A God with a relentless love, a relentless grace, a relentless pursuit 
for those he calls his beloved. Now we're jumping into Hosea here and, and Hosea is a part of the Bible we call the minor prophets. Now, now they're not called minor prophets because they're lesser than the major, major prophets, right? Like Hosea, his batting average wasn't good enough to, to join the team with Isaiah, right? Because no, no, it just means that they're, they're smaller books. They're, they're more concise. They're just these smaller books. We call them the minor prophets. You can see right away as you, as you have your book Bible open to Hosea. Look at verse two. Here's where we're going with this series. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And you can see right away where we're going here. First, first of all, we got to get past the name Gomer, okay? Like, let's get right past that, all right? That's, that's not the hard part of the story, although it is hard. If you're like 40 or over like myself, I think Gomer and I think, golly, right? Don't you think that? Shazam! Like, that's all I can, and let's get that away. Okay, now that we're done with that, we can move on, all right? So this lady's name is Gomer, all right? The, the harder part, I hope you hear it here, the harder part is he just said to his prophet, the one who speaks for God, he just said, I want you to marry a woman of whoredom. Marry a prostitute. I haven't seen the VeggieTales version of this yet. All right, that's gonna be, I don't remember doing Hosea coloring pages when I was in Sunday school, but I mean, here's the thing, I never thought I would say whoredom over and over again in front of a group of people, but here we are. We're up to like six times I've said that. We're Listen, the Bible is not a boring book, all right? What's going on here? What's happening here? God says to this prophet, I want you to marry a prostitute, Hosea. I want you to have children with her. Now, what you're going to see as we keep going, the, the, the real tough part, the real part that should make you go, what? Is that God puts in Hosea's heart a love for Gomer. This is not Hosea saying, I hate this woman, but God's told me I have to stay with her, so that's what I'm going to do. No, he, he loved her. He pursued her. You're going to read through Hosea and see that he had this crazy commitment to this woman. And, and despite his sacrificial love, despite being the most caring husband who pours out for his wife and loves her well, she continually cheats on him. In fact, we'll see next Sunday that she actually ends up becoming another man's property. She sells herself to a pimp. Hosea has to take some of his possessions, the things he owns, he has to sell them to buy back his own wife, to buy back the mother of his children. I mean, if you drop the, the stuffy religious way, we can sometimes come to scripture and you see it for what it is. The story of Hosea and Gomer is heart-wrenching. So, so let me start here. We, we, just to ask this, why would we jump into this book then? Why go into this series on, on God's relentless grace and God's relentless love? Well, there's a few reasons I think we should do this. One is that I, I want us to be a church that knows God's word. I want us to be a church that goes through God's word. We don't cherry pick the good verses and just stay there. We want to get into even the weird little books like Hosea, right? I, I mean, if you're going to heaven, if you know Jesus, I don't want you to show up in heaven and, and you bump into Hosea and he finds out you went to harvest and you're like, Hosea, you did something in the Bible, right? Like, I want you to know him, right? We, we want to know God's word. Here's another reason why I think it's good to, for us to dig into this series is that Hosea helps us to, to remember the beauty of God's grace 
by feeling the scandal of it. I mean, this story is supposed to make you stop in your tracks. You're supposed to read Hosea with a, this can't be true. Are you kidding me? It's a book that takes a a deep theological reality and and it moves it from our head to our heart. We actually begin to feel. You're supposed to feel this book, this this God's relentless grace is supposed to make us shake our head and go, this can't be true. That, That he would relentlessly pursue with love and grace those who relentlessly pursue other lovers. I mean, it's not just an Old Testament problem either. It's not just a Hosea-Gomer problem. It's something that you and I wrestle with every day, that we, we leave a God who saved us, who transformed us, who, who loves us, and, and we pursue other loves. We, we pursue other horizontal saviors. And so we read through a book like Hosea, and it wakes us up. It's, it's shocking, it's provocative, and it's that way on purpose. There's another reason why I think we should dive into this book, into this series, and that's this. I I want us to be a church that's all in. I I want us to live differently in response to God's grace. I want us to, to see our sin, to see his grace, and it changes how we live. We live differently because of it. We're, we're all in in what we do. We're all in in worship. And I, I don't just mean on Sunday morning. I, mean, I just mean coming together here and being all in as we sing worship, but that our lives would be lives of worship where we count Christ as our ultimate treasure. That we'd be all in in community. That we, we would love each other with a kind of love that's different than what the world has to offer because we've been changed. Man, we're all in for each other. That we'd be all in on mission, not just hiding out here, but we're, we're, hey, send me out of here, God. You fill me with your spirit. You've given me gifts. I don't want to just sit in a chair and participate, man. I want to be used. And we step out beyond our grasp and we go out to reach the lost. We're all in. We won't be all in for God until we start to recognize how all in he is for us. And Hosea gives us this mind-blowing view of this love of God, one that's almost too difficult to believe. And so as we unpack this, I want to be be sure that as we read through this, that, that we put ourselves in the story. Resist the tendency to read God's word, especially as we go through this, to to put yourself outside looking in, almost like it's just academic, but instead enter this story of God's relentless love. Because it's not just a story. Listen, this is your story. This is my story. And as you read it, you and I, we're not Hosea in the story. This is your story. This is my story. I'm Gomer. Here's where we're going to be going this morning as we unpack chapter one. I want us to look at what an unfaithful people we are, that we're under judgment, but that we find God's grace. Unfaithful people under judgment that find God's grace. So our first point then is this. We're the, let's look at what this unfaithful people looks like. Verse one says this. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So, so Hosea is written as, as this warning, a warning to a, a group of people who are, who are walking away from God, who are straying from the relation with God. 
If you want to get the historical background of, of where, when Hosea is writing, you can read about it in 2 Kings 15 to 20. If you read those four chapters, five chapters, 2 Kings 15 to 20, you'll get the context of what this is. Or in 2 Chronicles 26 to 32. You read those in your own time. 2 Chronicles 26 to 32. This is the context of which Hosea is writing. And Hosea's name, it actually means rescuer or helper or salvation. It has the same root, Hosea, as Joshua. The same root where we get the name Jesus from. It says this ministry takes place in, in, in Israel under these kings. Now when he lists that, he, he's in the days of, of Judah and Israel and all these kings. It doesn't mean a whole lot to a 2019 church in Canada. We read that and we're like, what? That, what? It doesn't. But, but him writing that, it, it would be his people hearing that. As you would read that, they, they'd be thinking, oh, it would be like me saying, hey, this happened during the Mulroney era. You'd be like, oh, okay, I know what, I know what time period he's talking about. That this happened during the Vietnam War. You'd be like, oh, okay, I know what you're talking about when this took place. So, so you'd read this, you'd go, oh, I know exactly when this is. It's between 786, 746 BC in Israel before Christ. It's, it's, it's 200 years after the kingdom of Israel had split into two. They'd split into two, two tribes called Judah, two tribes called Israel. The tribes of Judah actually were, were pretty faithful to the Lord. In fact, the list of kings there, all of them really good kings except Ahaz. They typically were pursuing the Lord. The tribe of Israel though, as you read through Hosea, called Ephraim, Ephraim, Israel, not faithful. They turned their backs on God. It was a culture just filled with injustice, with hypocrisy. They're under this king named Jeroboam. Now, here's the thing. Jeroboam was actually a good king for prosperity. Israel's doing great. They got more money than they know what to do with. It's, it's a successful time. People are happy. There's high affluence. But, but here's the thing. Don't buy this lie that gets preached every once in a while that, that wealth is a sign of God's blessing only. Well, just look at people who are wealthy. It's because they're following Jesus. Yeah, yeah, not always the case. It's called prosperity gospel. It's no gospel at all. He, here, the people are doing phenomenal financially, and God's not with them at all. They were as far from God as they could be, but life was good for them. The only fear they had was the Assyrians. The Assyrians were surrounding them. They were a growing nation. They were scared that they're going to come in and destroy them, and, and Hosea's coming right before the time when God says enough's enough and 722 BC Assyria does come in and take Israel captive. But here's the thing, when Israel was afraid, when they had, had, had stuff going on, when they faced financial worries, rather than turning to God, what they would do is they'd run to Egypt, they'd run to Assyria, they started to follow this, this false God, the God of Baal, and said maybe, maybe this is who will help us. That may not sound scandalous. They may not sound serious, but, but you have to understand what's going on at the heart level when that happens. Something else had replaced God as their place of trust and worship. I mean, the, our primary sin, the sin deep at the heart level happens when we let other things take the place that God's supposed to have in our hearts. I mean, even right now, as you think about that, ask yourself, hey, when I'm worried, where do I run? Like maybe right now, life's not easy. Life is hard and, and things aren't easy. Maybe it's relationship struggle or, or something else going on or physical struggle or financial struggle. Just things aren't easy. And, and here's the question I'd ask. Do you patiently look to God and say, God, I want to do things in your way? 
or, or in that moment, you take things in your own hands, you do things in your own way. I mean, wh where do you go when you're stressed? Do you go to substances? Do you go to entertainment? Do, do you go to control? Do you go to anger? Do you go to fear and worry? Do you, do you shop a lot? Do you, do, you, do you work a lot? Do you start to gossip a lot? The, the primary sin under those sins is not so much in the actions of what they are, it's that we're turning to something else for our comfort, for our hope, for our trust, rather than resting in the promises of a God who loves us. I mean, think about it just in your finances alone. And I mean, one of the reasons scripture makes such a big deal about us giving is that it reveals who, who we really trust, what we really trust. In the, in the Old Testament, there was a, a law, you tithe, you gave 10%. In the New Testament, there's no such law. It's, it's a little harder. Now it's give all you can. And listen, when we refuse to give, when we're not a generous people, what's it revealing in our hearts is my hope, my trust is in this stuff. And I, Lord, 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 I can't trust you. If I give this away, I don't trust you're gonna take care of me. And God says, I'm your joy, I'm your delight, I'm your confidence, I'm your trust. But like Israel, like Gomer, so often we look for things outside of God. The betrayal of Israel broke God's heart. And so God says to Hosea, this prophet, I want you to illustrate this. I want you to show this in your life. Go love a woman who's going to be completely unfaithful to you. For Hosea, his life is now his message. He just lives out this huge object lesson for all to see. I mean, we, we see Old Testament prophets do this a lot. Jeremiah wore this oxen yoke. Ezekiel slept on his side for a whole year, just slept on his side, one side. Isaiah preached for a season, listen, naked or mostly naked, all right? I mean, that, that's just, I would hate to be a prophet. You would hate for me to be that prophet. All right, let's just be honest, okay? <laughs> Hosea is not just asked to marry a woman who would be unfaithful. He's asked to marry a woman who would end up being a prostitute. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. She's not a troubled kid. She's not someone who's lost. She's not someone who's a victim of abuse. I mean, our hearts should break. When we're reading the story, you gotta get your mind in the right place. Our hearts should be broken for women caught in the sex trade. It's one of the reasons why pornography is so disgusting because of what it contributes to the sex trade. So this is not what this is. This isn't a, a, a young person or a woman who's trapped in, in some form of abuse. This is someone, and this is the horrible part of this story. This is someone, Gomer, who just pursued it because she loved it. It's meant to shock us. It's meant to have this image where you where imagine sitting at Tim Hortons across from, from your buddy and, and he looks kind of upset. And so you ask him, hey, are, are things tough in your marriage? And, and tears begin to well up in his eyes. And he said, she left me. And you're thinking, man, that, that's, that's horrible. I mean, that you would do that. And you're kind of, were, were things tough? Was it, and then tears streaming down his face. He goes, no, it's worse than just that she left me. She's on the streets. She's a prostitute. I mean, the weight of this is huge. The, the metaphor that Hosea's life is supposed to make us think about, it's, it's supposed to make us wince. It's supposed to, to shock us. It's supposed to be this, this, 
God's trying to shake us out of complacency, shake us out of being okay with sin. And, and so this isn't meant to be something that's supposed to be nice. It's like somebody who's unconscious and you, you smack them on the face to wake them up. You don't just go smack anybody on the face. That's not right, right? But if somebody's unconscious, you do something different. That's what this is about. If we're turning our backs on God, he will be relentless to rescue us, to get our attention. And so Hosea marries and loves Gomer and she pursues other men. And here's the thing, it's not just Hosea in this story. They have a family together. There are kids involved, kids who needed a mom. I mean, you could think about what Gomer is doing to Hosea's life, to what it's doing as he, as he has his kids, what he says to them. What it does is he walks through town and, and his friends and his family and what they're saying, what they're seeing, what he's feeling. I mean, think of the pain. Think of the sorrow. Think of the hurt. And the questions would be asked. You, you could hear the questions, right? Why, why would a married woman with kids become so wayward, so unfaithful? What is she after? What, what does she want? How could she do this? And these are questions we should be asking. They're the questions we're, we're meant to be asked. Because remember, you and I are in this story. Because you hear what, what, what Hosea says. The Lord says to Hosea in verse two, go take a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom. What does he say? For the land, the people, commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's you and I. What are we going after? Why are we doing this to the Lord? Why do I run so easily after sin? We're going to see there's, there's hope. There is hope. And the hope is not in trying more, doing better, striving harder, being more religious. Our, our hope is that Jesus steps in, not just to change our behavior, but he actually has the power to change our hearts, our wants, our desires as he buys us out of slavery to those desires. So here's what I want us to do. Here's what I want us to do as a church family. I would encourage you during the next six weeks as we're tracking through this sermon series, read the book of Hosea yourself. It's about 14 chapters. Just take your time, read through it. Ask the Lord, Lord, I wanna feel this text. I don't wanna just read it. I wanna feel the reality of sin. I, I wanna see sin how you see it, God, as you read through it. See that you, you were rescued, you were, you were bought from slavery, you were given a new name, a new heart, you, you were given grace and a guaranteed future, a guaranteed hope. You, you were given blessing upon blessing and yet how often do we turn and worship the blessing? Just pray as you read through Hosea over these next few weeks that God would grow your heart in gratitude because you see his grace more clearly. You see that Jesus was the one who bought us back with the price of his own blood. So we were, we are, we're, we're the unfaithful one. Listen, I am Gomer. Secondly, we're, we're the unfaithful people. We're under judgment. Secondly, we're under judgment. Now you, you see judgment in this text. It comes out as, as Hosea names his kids. 
Now, we, we choose our kids' names so carefully, don't we? We're, we're, we're going online. We're getting those. You used to have those baby books. I don't know if they have those anymore, all the names, right? And just what's the meaning? I want to make sure I get a good meaning. I don't know if you're like me. Most dads play this game. You rhyme all the names to make sure if they're getting bullied in school, they can't have that name, right? Because it, it rhymes with too many funny words, right? So you won't choose those names, right? Or, you're, or we'll choose names to be so unique. She's Caitlin, but we spell it the, the Gaelic way so no one will ever be able to spell her name or pronounce it, right? Right? This is coming from a guy whose name is Kai, K-A-J, so I shouldn't really say much about that, Kaj. But <laughs> here are the names that come out. Here are the names that God says, name your kids these names. Verse three, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, now that name Jezreel doesn't stand out shocking to us. We hear that name, we're like, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure. But it's deep meaning for those who are reading this. It's deep meaning when, when, when Jose would go, here's my baby boy. His name's Jezreel. It would cause you to go, <gasps> Jezreel is this place where, the, where, where judgment took place. People knew it well. It would be like, hey, here's my crazy, out-of-control, red-headed son. We call him Armageddon, right? right? It'd be like a Jewish family naming their child Holocaust. There's a weight to this name. People would ask him, why would you name your kid Jezreel? It's a place of, of bloodshed. It's a place of battle. And, and Hosea is saying with his own kids, judgment is coming. You can't keep running from God like you are. Judgment is coming. Goes on, verse six. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Now you notice the difference here. It said he bore, she bore him a son. Now it just says she bore a daughter. Can you make the connections here? Probably not Hosea's daughter. This is probably a child that came out of what she's doing as a prostitute. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and save them by the Lord their God. I will save them by bow or sword or by war, not by bow or sword, by war or horses or by horsemen. He's saying, I'm gonna save them myself, but you guys, no mercy. He's saying, I'm the one who saves, but for Israel, no mercy. Now you can read that and think, man, that is harsh. How, how could God say no mercy? Listen, if we want to understand God's mercy and his grace, we have to understand his anger and his judgment towards sin. He, he doesn't just wink and look the other way. If God did that, if he just said, I don't care, don't worry about it, he ceases to be God. He's holy and righteous. When we feel the ache of this story, we get a sense of God's wrath against sin. And listen, I want God to hate sin. I want God to get rid of all the sin in my life, in my family, in our church, in our community. I don't want God to be okay with it. I don't want God to be okay with injustice. This is no mercy. Verse eight goes on. And when she'd weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. It was again, just bore a son. It's not Hosea's. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. This last name, this is the most serious of the names. 
This is the one that would have shaken up Israel the most. It's this stunning statement from God. He's saying, you are not my people. Listen, all through Exodus, after God rescued them from Egypt, from slavery, as he led them out of Exodus, he would say over and over again, his pet name was, you're my people. You're my people. You're my beloved. You're my treasure. You're my chosen. And here, it's like a husband says to a wife who keeps pursuing prostitution unrepentantly, and he finally says, we're done. You're not the wife I married. You've gone after other loves so much, it's over. I'm not doing this anymore. The marriage is over. You're not my wife. God, right here, saying, I'm separating myself from my people because of their sin. Now, here's the thing. If we're honest, isn't that the expected response? Isn't that a response you go, totally justified for sure? Judgment should come. They, they'd, they'd made promises on Mount Sinai that they didn't keep. That's the picture here. It's this, it's this broken marriage. It's a, a broken covenant. You have to understand, a, a covenant is so much different than a contract, right? Through Scripture, God uses the term covenant a lot. A contract you enter into to say, how do I protect myself? That's what a contract really is, right? Or a covenant is, how do I bind myself to this? It's a solemn promise. It's why we say that marriage is a covenant. I mean, it's so much deeper than we do relationships today. Today, it's about, yeah, I feel this relationship, but covenant. I mean, I remember back in the early days, I don't think we do it anymore, but I remember back in the early days when you would join a small group, you would sign a small group covenant. There were things on there. I will not gossip about people in this group. I will love these people. And, and here's the thing. People push back on it. Do you know why? Because of the term covenant. And here, they push back for the right reason in a way. They're saying, that word is serious. Covenant, I don't know if I could sign a covenant. This is a big deal. Usually we say, I don't want to enter into that kind of a relationship that, that requires that kind of deep commitment before the Lord. No, no, no. I want to be able to pull out if things don't go well. I'd rather just bail. Israel had broken a covenant. God says, listen, you've walked away so much. You broke the covenant. So here's the thing. Let's not try to create a God that is so full of grace that we eliminate all of his justice, that we miss the weight of our sin, of our rebellion. I mean, who would blame the husband in this relationship to say, I can't do this anymore? Just years of unfaithfulness. We would never counsel a spouse to stay in an abusive relationship where there's unrepentant, continual, ongoing unfaithfulness. It's heavy, but thankfully the story doesn't end here. We'd be lost if that's the end of the story. God says, I'm done with you because of your sin. But here's the thing, I don't want to rush to the end too quickly. But let's get to the happy part. Let's get to the joyful part. Like we, we all love watching movies that, that have a happy ending to them. That's so, right, unless you're like one of these jaded people, like, oh, that's not real, man. I wish they all died, right? But we normally, we like happy endings to movies, right? That's how we're wired. Now, we're also wired in this way, though. Some people love cheesy movies where everything works out and it's unrealistic. But most of us are like, meh, nice. I like to feel good. But we would say, not quite real life, Right? Here's the thing. 
I don't want to rush past this because here, here's what we need to recognize as we stay in this, as we feel the weight of it. God is not obligated to love Israel. He's not obligated to redeem. He's not obligated to save anyone. Our sin deserves eternal punishment. It is nothing short of a miracle that God saves anybody. Unfaithful people under judgment, just and righteous judgment. But listen, listen, they do find grace. I mean, if we aren't completely blown away by God's grace, it's because we've rushed too quickly past it. It's because we don't actually truly deeply understand God's love and his grace. Listen, we are Gomer. Hosea should have nothing to do with us but grace. I mean, it's amazing grace. We have this horrible image painted for us where, where Israel, us, running from God, relentlessly pursuing other loves, other lovers. And God says, you broke the covenant. You turned your back against me over and over and over again. But look at verse 10. Look at the word it starts with. Yet. I love that word. Yet. Listen, unfaithful people under judgment find God's grace. Find God's grace. Verse 10 starts with yet. Because these unfaithful people under judgment, listen, find grace. That's our last point this morning, that we find God's grace. This, this awesome word yet, this gospel word, this, this word of grace, that, that these ungodly people find grace, not because of anything we do, but because God is God. Because God says, I'm still pursuing this morning, you might be here this morning and you're wearing the weight of sinful choices. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've given up. Maybe, maybe you carry the consequences of decisions you've made and, and the shame that that brings, the, the hurt that that brings. Maybe you carry the weight of, I don't know if I could ever live up to this righteous standard. And you're like, I'm done. I can't do this. They're decisions you wish you could take back. And so as you go through Hosea, you get it, man. You feel the weight of sin. In fact, it takes you to a place of shame. But listen, listen, God doesn't want you to stay in shame. The weight of sin, that's good for our souls. It's good to recognize that weight. It, it shakes us up out of complacency. My prayer is this, that when you feel the weight of sin, it doesn't drive you further away from God, but no, it drives you not deeper into shame, but it drives you into experiencing the life-changing grace of God. God says, yet, despite all they've done, despite the shame, despite the sin, despite the pain, despite the un deserving nature of God's love and compassion. Listen, he still chooses to go after them. Keep reading verse 10, it says this. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, now we, we talk about covenant already. If you're reading this, there, there should be something that triggers your mind. If you've been in God's word a lot, there should be something in the, what's said there that goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. They shall be numbered like the sands of the sea. That, that reminds me of a covenant God made. 
A covenant God made with Abraham where he said, Abraham, I'm gonna multiply you. I'm gonna bless you. And from you, you'll be a blessing to the nations. Now, what's so important about this covenant that God's now talking about? We've talked about it before, but to catch you up, if you're not sure what this thing was, God made a covenant with Abraham. And the, the word covenant, actually, what they would talk about is we cut a covenant. And why you would cut a covenant is you would actually cut animals in half. You cut them in half, you lay them down an aisle way, and the covenant is you walk down through the bloody mess that pours out from these bloody animals. Kind of gross be a horrible way to do a covenant at a wedding, but maybe, right? I don't know. And you've got this, and, and you would walk you, and as you would walk through with the person, you would say, may be done to me what is done to these animals if I break this covenant. Tear me apart like these animals are tore apart if I break. I mean, that's serious. God says, Abraham, we're gonna, I'm gonna enter into a covenant with you. And then what happens though? Abraham goes, okay, let's do it. He cuts all the animals. He lays them out. God puts Abraham in a deep sleep and in a dream, Abraham see God, sees God like a blazing torch go through the cut animals by himself. You can imagine Abraham waking up going, hey, okay, what's going on? Like, like I fell asleep, sorry about that. We gotta do this covenant. Let, let me, let's do this. And, and God's saying, yeah, we are doing a covenant, but you would never be able to keep this perfectly. If this covenant, if my love for you was based on what you did, this whole thing falls apart. So while Abraham slept, God himself goes through the animals. God's grace is not based on our good works. God's grace is not based on our effort or our character. God's saying, listen, it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. You and I add nothing to our salvation. We were asleep when God did all the work, where God himself walked through the pieces. And listen, on Calvary, Christ fulfills the covenant where he was torn apart for sin he didn't do, but we did. Tore apart for our broken covenant, a promise we broke. And, and God's saying, this promise, this covenant, it's complete, it's, it's unconditional, it's eternal, it's irrevocable because God says, I never fail. My character is true. My name is perfect. That's what my grace is based on. Our only hope is God's faithfulness. Unfaithful people brought back because of God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. And I love this because what it means is, listen, your sin, my sin, it doesn't own us. You're not too far out of the reach of God's grace. That, that, that loved one you know, that prodigal son or daughter, that, that parent, that family member, that friend who's wandered away, they seem so far from God. Listen, not even the prostitute owned as a slave is too far from God's grace. For him to say, I'm redeeming that one. I'm purchasing this one. The price has been paid by the cross of Christ. And you notice what it says in verse 10. It says, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. He says, in that place of total judgment, you're not my people. There's redemption. You're my children. How can there be both judgment and grace at the same time in the same place? I mean, where can we see that? Where do you see God's judgment poured out and his grace poured out in the same moment? Listen, listen, you, you know where I'm going, right? This is foreshadowing the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the scandalous, gut-wrenching, heart-hurting 
place where we see grace displayed in Jesus, the sinless, perfect Son of God, hung on a cross instead of you and me. God's judgment on display at the very same time, his grace and his love. And we, the prostitutes, we get God's mercy. Because Jesus, Jesus, our, our head, our Savior, the Lord, Verse 11 says, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. They shall appoint for themselves one head. Jesus Christ is over us and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That day of judgment at the cross, we now celebrate. It changes everything for us. Hosea's life was a, an object lesson lived out and, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna do one today for us. I'm not gonna ask you to marry a prostitute. Here's what we're gonna do. We have the ushers come forward with communion. We're, we're going to act out grace. That, that's what communion is. As the ushers come forward, as they just, as they just hand out communion, as you, as you grab the cups, they're stacked one on top of each other. It is us, in a way, saying, I'm doing something physical to remember a spiritual reality. As they go by, listen, if you know Christ, grab those cups stacked on top of each other, grab them, hold on to them. We're going to partake together as we remember grace poured out on us, as we remember God's judgment poured out on Christ. And God gives us these pictures, a, a way for us to remember it. Communion is something that we should feel. Don't, don't, don't let communion be this religious activity you just kind of do. Yeah, we take the crackers, we drink the juice, we're good, we're gone. No, you're supposed to feel it. Where Jesus says, remember my body. Every time you eat, remember my body. Every time you drink, remember my blood. It's a, a physical way we can hold on to that, that piece of cracker and go, wow, Christ gave his body for me. Christ poured out his blood for me. And what do we do at communion? We remember. We're, we're broken by the sacrifice of Christ. We're restored by it. We see our sin and we celebrate grace. You know, I read a ton of commentaries getting ready to preach through Hosea. And it was interesting to see how many commentaries struggled with the idea of, of this being an actual historical event. They struggle with the idea of God asking one of his prophets to marry a prostitute. So some commentaries say, well, maybe it's an allegory. Maybe, maybe it's just a picture God was creating. Or, or maybe it's a vision that, that Hosea had. He didn't actually live it out, but he had this vision of this. Or, or, or maybe it was just a story that Hosea told. There are lots who said, I, that's too hard to do because it's, it's obviously written as a historical event. So you know, one commentary said, maybe, maybe this is Hosea looking backwards at his marriage and looking back at the past, kind of like, What? I married a prostitute. Why are they trying to figure this out? Why are they trying to wrap themselves up so much into this pretzel of trying to figure it? It can't be. It can't be. I think because of struggle, they struggle with the horror and the scandal of God asking a prophet to marry a prostitute. But listen, listen, don't move past the scandal. I mean, I'm glad that the scandal's here. 
Because otherwise my only hope to be accepted by a holy God is I need to be holy and righteous and perfect. And listen, that leads to to religion. It leads to striving. It leads to to wearing yourself out and saying, I give up. But listen, it's against the, the dark black scandal of the darkness of what's going on here that the the grace of God shines so much brighter. If Hosea and Gomer didn't happen, then I'm left wondering if the cross could happen. I mean, the history here that we read in Hosea shows us the truth of the gospel. That yes, in Hosea's time, God asked Hosea to to walk in his shoes, but, but 700 years later, God would put himself in our shoes. Jesus would take our place as the prostitute so that we could experience grace as sons and daughters. And when you hold on to the bread and the cup, that you remember that Jesus took sin head on. He pursues the unrighteous and the impure, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't kind of go around sin. No, he shows us the reality of God's holiness. He calls us to live righteously, and then he takes our sin on himself, displayed for all to see the righteous wrath and holiness of God. If you don't know Jesus, listen, God is pursuing you like a loving husband. And right now, right now, this morning, you can respond to that. Right now, where you are, you can pray right now, God, I've been so unfaithful. I've run after so many other things. And, and, and maybe this morning, God drew you in. Maybe it was even broken. It's like, man, something's not right in my life. And God's using the weight of sin because he's drawing your heart even today. That if you don't know Jesus, that right now, where you are, you can pray. You can talk to God in the quiet of your heart and say, Lord, I'm Gomer. I need your grace. Would you forgive me? Would you make me whole again? Would you make me your son? Would you make me your daughter? Because if you don't know Jesus and, and you've wandered away, so if you know Jesus, if you know him this morning, but you've wandered from him, you've stopped pursuing, you've grown complacent, listen, Jesus is pursuing you today. That your heart, as you hold the cup and the bread, your heart can be filled with worship for the grace poured out on you that when Satan reminds you of your sin, maybe even the sin this week, when he reminds you, and listen, you, you can look at it and go, yep, it's true, it's real, it's right there. I can't defend it. But you can know as we celebrate communion that you've been bought You've been redeemed. You've you've gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're no longer an outsider. You're now a child of God. So even right now, take time to see the love of God displayed in the cross as you hold the cup, as you hold the bread. That maybe right now in in a moment of prayer, you would take your sin to the Lord. You, you, You would pray a prayer of repentance where he said, Lord, I want to turn from these sins, from those lovers I've gone after, the things that have grabbed a hold of my heart. In this moment, you turn towards the one who loves you unconditionally. Take the time right now. You haven't gone too far.
also celebrate communion to, to see God's mission of grace and say, Lord, I wanna join you on this mission. That the, this scandal of grace that we read about Hosea should stir our hearts and say, I wanna be the Hosea in my family. I wanna be the Hosea in my marriage. I wanna be the Hosea in this church, in this community. And we take communion, we remember the cross, we remember that we're called out to be that Hosea, to be that Jesus for others. So maybe right now where you are, you need to take some time. Maybe it's prayers of, Lord, would you help me forgive? Forgive the one who hurt me. Prayers of God, you need to send me out on mission. I've been holding back. I've been so fearful of, of stepping out and, and being used by you. And, and you've given me these ideas, these things that I, I know I'm called to do to reach my community. But man, it seems weird. Some of them seem like they don't even fit with what our church is doing. But man, I feel like you're calling me to it. And right now, Lord, is this you? Because I want to follow you. I want to pursue you. Listen, we don't stop there. If you, if you know Christ, listen, you have his spirit in you. Your heart has been changed. That's what was missing. It, it, it wasn't that Jesus comes in and he stops us from doing sinful things, but no, he gives us a new heart that, that no longer wants those things, a, a heart with new desires that, that we can actually pursue Christ. Now, Romans 5 says that he pours out his love in us. He gives us a, his spirit to make us new. And so we don't, listen, we don't pursue purity to win God's love. You pursue it as a response to God's love. When you see how much he loves you, how much he's pursued you, how much he, he goes after you, how much he, he, he redeems you and changes you, listen, it begins to change who you are. Your only response to, to seeing this pursuit of that loving God is a response of worship. So as we take communion together, then, then may that also be a reason why you partake today as an act of worship, where your heart is filled with gratitude for God's grace, that you're made new. So would you stand with me now? It says in Scripture that on the night he was betrayed, that Christ took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, eat this. And when you do, remember my body that was given for you. Let's eat together. In the same way he took the cup. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you, this new covenant you have, this changed heart, this changed status, that you go from being an outsider to a child of God. He says, when you drink this, remember me. Let's drink together. Listen, as we uh, end off with worship, as, as a Christ follower, maybe for you right now, you're like, man, I just prayed that prayer. So I can say, as a Christ follower, you go, yeah, that's me today. I would say this, if that is you today, tell somebody. It says in scripture that when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, like tell someone, you know what? This morning, I really gave my life to Christ. I, I thought I had before, I never had before, but this morning was the morning. Listen, as a Christ follower, Jesus pursued you, Jesus looked for you, he bought you, he redeemed you, he saved you, he died for you. He's Hosea, we're Gomer. No matter how far you ran, he ran after you. No matter what you've done, Jesus paid your debt. No matter what that person in your heart longs for to, to experience the grace of God, 
Jesus can buy them back. God gives grace to unfaithful people because God is God. This morning you would say, this is my name, I'm Gomer. My name is Kai Ballantyne, I'm Gomer. Let me pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much for your grace poured out on us. It is so transforming. You receive all the worship. You receive all the glory. You receive the wholeness of our lives in response because we know that none of this is possible without your relentless grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name.